All right, sisters and brothers, on this beautiful snowy day, we've got a great story to talk about. And so let me uh, just kind of dive in because it's a little bit longer text. And we're going to look at, um, it's in, it's, this story is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And the actual story is verses 11 through 32, but I'm going to have a start at verse 1 and just read the first three verses and then I'll skip down to the 11th verse. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now this parable that he told them is not directly the parable of the prodigal son. Actually, the first parable is the parable of the 99 sheep. You recall the 99 sheep, Jesus left them, or he says the master leaves them, not Jesus, and he goes after and finds the one lost sheep. And then immediately after that, he tells the story of the, of the coin, the, women who had, uh, the woman who had 10 coins, and one of them was lost, and so she went and looked and, and found uh, the, the, the lost coin. And then we get to this particular parable. So it's the third of a triad of parables, if you will, dealing with lost things. And so verse 11 says, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them, and a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. And I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son." The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. And he became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with them. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this day, for safe travels, for those who have come. We thank you for a Sabbath day in order to reflect yet again on you. Our dependence on you as our loving Father. The one who sees us from afar. The one who comes for us wherever it is that we are. We pray, Lord, that on this day the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight and yours alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So this is one popular parable. I'm sure it's the most popular parable. In fact, some have said it, it could be the most popular and well-known story in all of the world. And one of the reasons why it's so popular is because of the fact that even though it happened so long ago, even though the story was told more than 2,000 years ago and in a very different place, it still resonates with our family life even now, does it not? I mean, almost all of us have a family, and I would say, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but many of us have dysfunctional families, right? Yeah, okay. So, so here you have, at the very beginning, you've got the sibling rivalry, right? If you have a sibling, you know what it's like to have a sibling rivalry, Right? If you are, oftentimes this happens at least, if you are an older brother or older sister, you feel like the younger sibling got away with everything, right? That, that they were clearly loved more, that they, you know, could do whatever they want, right? I would encourage you when my older sister comes to visit at some point to ask her. She loves to regale people about how differently we were raised, she says, and about how much easier my life is than hers was. Uh, younger siblings, of which I am one, obviously, we, we look up to our older siblings and, 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 and we think their life oftentimes is boring, right? They're all about being responsible, doing the right thing. They love to, to rub it in how much better they are and, and, and how much less grief they give their parents. And, and there's just this kind of this notion, it seems to me, that, that, that older siblings are always they're just, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They get to do things first. They get more of things than the younger sibling gets. It just doesn't seem right if you're a younger brother or sister. And then, of course, you have the parents. And I've heard this for many years, and now I'm finally beginning to experience it, which is the the very bizarre reality that, that even though these children can come from the exact same parents and be raised almost identically, they end up very, very different oftentimes. And sometimes some of you know the kind of the struggle of, of how do you love a rebellious child without kind of, you know, spending so much time trying to love and be with that child that you neglect the more responsible one. So this is a story that we know because it's a story that many of us live. And so it's pretty remarkable that clearly these kinds of things and these families have been around for a long time. And yet, even though it's something that we resonate with, the reality is the distance between now and then and where we are as a society here in America versus the Middle East, it's pretty dramatically different as well. 
And I've been kind of made more aware of that by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey is a, a Presbyterian uh, a kind of a, a, a professor or a missionary who lived in the, and worked in the Middle East for over 40 years. And he's got some kind of interesting insights, it seems to me, about this story. And uh, one of the things he talks about is that from the very beginning, whenever he asks or whenever he, uh, the, the, the prodigal asks for the property, for his inheritance, he is really basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because, of course, the inheritance, first of all, he shouldn't get uh, until after uh, the, the, the father is dead, right? Uh, and because of the fact that, of course, this would have meant his property. What he wants is the property because, they, you know, this wasn't banking. It wasn't like he could go and say, okay, well, you can take this part of the stock portfolio. No, he had to give up his very land. And, and Ken Bailey says he's had over a hundred conversations with villagers in the Middle East. And the conversations would go something like this, you know, has this ever happened in your village where a son has asked his father for his inheritance while he's still alive? And he said, no. And so then the, Bailey said, well, what, what could it ever happen? And, and, the, and the villagers said, well, it's impossible. He said, well, what, what would happen if the son asked the father that? He's like, oh, well, of course the father would beat him. And why would the father beat him? Well, because of the fact that he's saying, I wish you were dead. But the father, remarkably, even though this would have been incredibly humiliating, he gives the son the freedom. He splits up, we are told, the property, which would have meant that he would have given a third of it to the younger son, and he splits it up and he gives two-thirds of it to the older son. Well, the younger son obviously sells the property so that he can have the money to go do what he wants to do. So this is a humiliating thing for the father and the family, but it is also an affront to the whole community. Community was very different for the people of the Middle East. It is now, and it continued, and it was long ago. In fact, it was a little bit like sometimes I hear uh, kind of old-timers. I hope it's okay to say old-timers. I'll try not to look at anybody so you don't think I'm talking about you. But, you know, old-timers. Uh, okay, I, I was looking at Bob Tibbetts. Old-timers who I love, you know. And, and so sometimes, you know, we talk about, you know, oh, when I was growing up, you probably heard this, right, in our neighborhood, if, if there was a kid who was being wrong, you know, the, they, they just grab that kid and they'd give that kid a spank. And even if it wasn't your own kid, right, and you just kind of, you know, toss him back out. It's just what was done. This was community. This wasn't just my kid. This was our community's kid. And, and when, they, when the kid did something good, we all celebrated because it's our kid. And when the kid did something poor, we were, we were upset and we were angry. And so in this particular situation, when the young son does this, the whole community would have been humiliated, would have been angered over what he had done. But the young son does not care. And so he goes off and he lives in this kind of debauchery and he's, he's out having a good time. And not surprisingly, he wastes all of the money. And before you know it, he's sitting there, right? You know the story. And as a Jewish kid, to be sitting there with pigs and feeding pigs, I mean, this is the ultimate of humiliation. And so, we are told, he came to himself, or he came to his senses. Now, that's kind of interesting because of the fact that it doesn't actually say that he repented. And in the first two parables, remember the first two parables we talked about? The one with the sheep and the coin. In both times, when Jesus tells a story, it says he repented. 
But this doesn't say that. In fact, and then he goes on and it almost seems kind of rehearsed, right? And you kind of wonder, is the prodigal son really sorry for what he did, or is he sorry that it didn't work out? We brought this up on, someone brought this up on Wednesday morning at the staff meeting, and they said, you know, if you're cynic, you might just say, well, he's not really sorry, and he just, he just realizes that he's going to die of hunger, so he does whatever he can. And someone, you know, someone else said, well, if you're more hopeful, you might think, well, no, he really is repentant. I mean, he uses the word sin there. And I kind of think, actually, maybe it's a little bit of both. And it's this great kind of reality that our repentances are rarely completely pure. Most times when we say sorry to God or to others, a lot of times it's a little bit of a mixed bag. But it's also the reality that it's not our place to ask whether or not your repentance was real or not. My place is not to ask you whether or not you are really repentant to God or to myself. It is to trust in God the Father, which of course is exactly what we see going on. The Son begins to return. And we're told the Father sees him when he is far away. And so he runs to him, right? And we talked about last week about the fact that a man running in his robe was not a good thing. Aristotle said, no good man runs in public. So he runs, he doesn't care, right? And oftentimes when we think about this story, I think at least when I think about it, I think, well, he just really misses him and he's so glad he's back. And surely that's a part of it. But there's also something going on here, which is that the father is protecting the son from the community. It's important to know as we kind of think about how these things are farmed out that that it's a little different than than, than how we understand farm lives today, right? If we were to move north of here, it really is strikingly beautiful. If we were to move north from here or to go west from here, you would get in farmland. And what would you find? You'd find farmland and then like a farmstead, like a house where they lived. And then you'd you'd keep going and you'd find more farmland and then another house, maybe with some trees around it. And then you'd, you'd keep going and another farm, right, with another house. But that's not the way it was in this time. The houses were together. All the houses were together, and then the farmland surrounded. They would go out to their farm and then come back. So first of all, it's important to know that when the father sees him afar off, the father knows that there's a good chance that he's not the only one who is seeing this kid return. And remember that when they see the kid, they're already upset and angry with this child. And so there's a good chance that if they see the kid before the father sees the kid, they are going to go out and they are either going to beat him or worse. Not only that, that if they didn't decide to beat him or after they beat him, that they would cast him out. In fact, in the Talmud, if a Jewish boy loses his money, the inheritance to Gentiles, there was a whole ceremony, which at the end, they were kicked out for eternity from the community. And so when the father runs out, he is not just running to him because he loves him so much or because he missed him. It's because he wants to protect him from the community that he knows is angry at him. A striking thing to see about God the Father wanting to run out and protect him from those he knows will be upset for what he has done. And immediately then the father calls for what? He calls for his best robe and for the best robe. And whose robe is that? It's the father's. The fathers have the best robes, right? These were the days, right? 
The father has the best robe, and then he orders what he, a sandals and signet ring, which means he's not a slave anymore. I mean, no, he's not going to take him as a slave. It's his son. And then, he, and then he says, and kill the what? The fatted calf. And who owns the fatted calf? The older brother. Because remember, he already divided up the land. And the two-thirds of it continues to be the father, continues to be the elder brothers. The father has given up on that. Now, while the elder brother continues to let him live with him, unlike the younger brother, it is the older brother's cow. In fact, one of my seminary professors said, you know what, this is the, this is the elder brother's uh, prize-winning 4-H cow. And he says, kill the fatted calf. Now, if any of you are farmers, or even if you're not, you just think about it, you know what that's a lot of? That's a lot of meat. My father has kind of begun to raise cows over the last few years, just one or two at a time, and and he'll kill it, and then he'll give us about one-sixteenth of it. And it is still a ton of meat. In fact, we had to buy kind of one of those big freezers, right, in order to store it all. Well, think about what they don't have. They don't have freezers. Which means if you're killing the fatted calf, you are having a party for whom? Not just the family, but the whole community. And why is he doing this? To try to bring reconciliation between the boy and all of the angry community. And what a striking image it seems to me that, of the reality that when we are reconciled to God, a part of that is also trying to be reconciled to one another, right? We've heard this maybe once or twice, love God and love neighbor. And this reality of mending relationships. And so that's exactly what they do. They kill the fatted calf. More than likely, the party is, the party is clearly going underway. The community is gathered around. Everyone, it seems to be, is, is celebrating. And then the elder brother arrives. The elder brother is not very happy. In fact, he stays outside. And while that may not seem like a big deal to us, the reality is in that time, the older brother's responsibility was to go inside the party and make sure that everything is being taken care of, to make sure that all the I's are dotted, that all the T's are crossed. And for him to have stood outside is humiliating to the father. And not only that, it's even more humiliating that the father then leaves the party to go out to where he is. A host in the Middle East never leaves the party. Just as he ran out to the younger son and was willing to be humiliated by saying, I'll run, it doesn't matter to me what others think, he decides to go out no matter how humiliating to be with the older brother. They, of course, have a discourse that doesn't seem all that pleasant. And the son, the older son, can't understand why, after everything that he's done, he has obeyed him at all times. He's never left while the younger son has squandered his land to prostitution. And yet he gets this fatted calf, and I haven't even gotten a measly goat. To which the father rightfully says, everything I have 
is yours. But we had to celebrate because your brother who was lost has been found. It's a remarkable story. And and quite frankly, there are so many places that you could go with this. And when I was a kid, we would oftentimes go to the prodigal son. That's where we would focus. Uh, A part of that was just because I think that's, you know, we label the story the prodigal son. And so, you know, Jesus, by the way, he didn't say, okay, I've got a story to tell you. It's called the prodigal son. No, we just label it the prodigal son, but it shapes how we read the story. A part of it is because I was raised in a Pentecostal church, and the Pentecostal church is full of, of prodigals, full of people who have lived lives that have been uh, uh, interesting, shall we say, and and have and have perhaps been far off and then and then come back home. But then I got older, and I had to be honest with you, I, I was never that prodigal kid by and large. I wasn't perfect by any stretch. Ask my sister again about that. But I I never had a massive rebellion. I I don't ever remember some sudden conversion experience. It just felt like I was always there with God and that God was always there with me. And the more I kind of thought about that and reflected on it, the more it became very clear that the person who I always mostly ignored, the one who always seemed to be off in the shadows and just was kind of grouchy and grumpy, was, of course, the older brother, the responsible one, the, the Presbyterian. And so from that time, what I've really focused on oftentimes when it comes to this story is that older brother and asking, what does that older brother say to us? We have prodigals here. There's no question. But my guess is that most of us probably align a lot more with the older brother, the responsible one. And I wonder, what exactly does that one have to teach us? It seems to me that one of the very simple things that it has to teach us is the simple fact that grace will almost always be more than we think is fair and bigger than we think is possible. Grace for older brothers, will always, almost always be a lot bigger than what we think it should be. We, as older brothers and sisters, responsible ones in the faith, we like to draw in pretty strong lines about who's in or who's out and, we, and, and what's right and what's wrong. We like to, we like to do that pretty, pretty strongly. And, And Jesus, it seems to me, his blood and his grace oftentimes come and they muddle some of that and we aren't comfortable with that because we like to know what is fair and what is right and who gets what and who doesn't get what and that makes us feel good and right and that's how we understand grace. But of course, that is actually the absolute opposite of what grace is. By its definition, it is not fair. It is not neat. It is reckless. And it is costly. Not to us, but to God. 
And I think that we have to know, you know, it's similar to me. I have, I have a friend who, who loves to exaggerate. And so whenever she tells a story, I always tone it down internally. And I think the opposite is true when it comes to us in our lives with God and with others, that when we think about something or when we get angry or when there's this judgmentalism that comes over us is to try and think there's a good chance that God may be looking at this with a little bit more grace than I am. Just make that assumption. But I want you to know it's not just the grace that you may have for others. It's even or that you think God may have for others or not have. It's the grace that you think and the love that you think God might have for yourself as well. Think about the older brother. What does he say to the father? All of these years I have been like a a slave working for you. In other words, I'm a slave, not a son. In other words, the things that he's doing and working on, he is doing them in order to gain, he hopes, the acceptance and the love of his father, rather than doing them out of a love that he knows his father already has for him. I thought about that this past week. I have a a mentor friend of mine, uh, a guy by the name of Steve Hayner. He's older than me, three or four decades older than me. And he actually passed away about three weeks ago now. Steve was a great guy, and I could tell you more about him at some point. Without Steve, there's a 99.8% chance I wouldn't be here today. But, but Steve had a huge impact, not just on me, but on, on many people. And he grew up in the church. He was always a good guy. He, he started after seminary. He went to University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, and he started the university program there. And it grew from 17 to over 1,200 and then he went on, he became president of, of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a, a kind of a college uh, a ministry, Christian ministry. And he, he ended up chairing the board of an organization called International Justice Mission. And he was on boards like World Vision and Fuller Seminary. He was an incredible guy. And, and, and when he was diagnosed just after Easter with pancreatic cancer, he started in this kind of, I think it's called Caring Bridges, maybe you know this, uh, this website. And he started kind of journaling. And it was remarkable to hear, in fact, after his death, it's been kind of rotated across the internet, some of his entries, they're, they're honest, there are times of depression, and yet also remarkable hope. As he said to somebody, I, I'm not afraid because I've been practicing for this my whole life. This past Monday was his funeral. It was down at Peachtree Presbyterian in Atlanta. And I watched it. It was a beautiful sermon, beautiful service, I should say. But there was one part of it that struck me, and I could not stop thinking about it. It's just about a minute and a half long, and I, I want you to watch it. This is what you're going to see is, is his daughter, Emily. And she's going to talk about his dad here in just this short little snippet. Here's a guy who has done remarkable things for the Lord. And yet even here, he could be honest about the reality of how much, no matter how much he has preached about love and grace again and again and again, how difficult it was for him to genuinely believe it 
on himself. And I have a feeling that he's not alone. I know that I struggle with it. And I know a lot of other more responsible folks who struggle with the reality and who continue to try and work and work and work in hopes that at some point they will feel as if God finally loves them, as if they are good enough for his grace. And the reality, of course, is that you are not. You will never be good enough. You will never be able to do enough. It is not about you. It is about simply living in the grace and the love of God. And I think so often the Father comes out and embraces us, and as he is hugging us, we are trying to get our arms free so that we can do things to earn that hug. There's a couple things, it seems to me, that we can do as older brothers, those of us who are older brothers and sisters. One, of course, we've talked about this before many times, is to actually really practice the Sabbath, right? To practice what it means to not believe that we are are, are what we do. But another thing, I think, is to come into worship with a different kind of lens. To come into worship with the lens that you are coming here in order to celebrate, in order to have a party. One of the reasons why Presbyterians struggle with having joyful worship is because they don't really believe that they have been made children of God. Because if they did, and if they genuinely believe that, in all three parables that Jesus tells, there is celebration, there is rejoicing. But so often we come here in order to, okay, let's come into worship so that we can learn how we can better live as we go out. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a better living as you go out, but know this, it never begins with that. And if that's where you start, rather than starting with the reality that you have been loved by God, then you will see God as a slave and not as a father. And finally, it seems to me to practice with each other. There are people that you know, that you've experienced, and you don't think they deserve grace. You don't think they deserve that forgiveness. And you know what? You are probably right. This isn't about being fair or right, though. And I'm convinced that if you can begin to practice this in your own life, to begin to practice to give grace more and more freely, even when you don't think they deserve it, you will begin to understand how God has done that for you. And I think we practice it when we take of the bread and the cup. We think about Jesus on the cross when it comes to this, and another image perhaps for you to think about is God the Father running after you. And that every time, crumb by crumb and drip by drip, that you are participating and that you are intaking of the grace and love of Jesus, you are practicing grace. This is a celebration. It's a celebration that all of us are invited to, whether or not you are an older brother or a younger brother, no matter where you've been or where you are, no matter what you've done or what you have left undone. This is a feast for the people of God. God invites those who are willing to accept his embrace to come 
to take and to eat.